I'm going to preach on all three of the readings, but before I do that, I want to say something about the revised common lectionary. For about the last, what is it, 10 years, we've been using the RCL in the Episcopal Church. More than that. Yeah, it's been since 2000, maybe. Um, and I want to say something about it because it's, uh, it's important. Uh, the Revised Common Lectionary was adopted by the Episcopal Church at its general convention, I think, in the mid-90s. And its importance is that it is an ecumenical lectionary. Most of the mainline churches use this lectionary, and it's about 80% the same as the Roman Catholic lectionary for Mass. And the important thing for that about that is, is that all the churches are reading the same readings every Sunday, virtually. Each church has some special exemptions. We use a certain set of readings for Easter that may differ from some of the other churches and so forth. But it means that on any given Sunday, particularly in the green season, uh, we're all reading and pondering uh, the, 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 the biblical text uh, in the same location. And there's some benefit to that. The other advantage, or one of them, is that we hear now about people and we hear voices from people in the Revised Common Lectionary that were not as prominent in the former lectionaries. So today we're going, we hear in the, in the reading from Genesis about Rebecca and Rebecca's call and her marriage to Isaac. I'll talk a little bit about that. And then in the reading from Romans, we have Paul who is engaged in one of his kind of very tightly argued uh, things about our motives and things, and I'm going to speak about that. And then to say something about the gospel, which, is, which the meaning is not really clear, but it's an example of something that I've been preaching about for a while now, and that is, is that remember that the Bible it was written uh, or heard by people may, who were mainly illiterate. They could not read or write. And so as you begin to read the biblical text, you can see within the text certain devices that can be used when you're in a culture that can uh, memorize things far better than we can, that you can memorize little pieces and use them as tools for evangelism. And so this is perhaps one of the ones that you see uh, in uh, Matthew's Gospel. So I'll talk briefly uh, about that. So... We have the story of Rebecca. Um, the thing that has stood out to the people to, today who have made comment to me about this reading is the ring in her nose. <laughs> right? I mean, one thing you can say is that piercing has a long and valued tradition. Not a felicitous uh, uh, thing. You know, this is also an example of being in post-modernity. There's some stuff that just can't, you can't get past. And so th this, is, this is one of them for a lot of people, you know. It's some terrible thing. Anyway, uh, Rebecca agrees to go with Abraham's servant uh, to meet Isaac, and she marries Isaac. And the purpose of this reading in the Revised Common Lectionary is, is to demonstrate that we have now the great patriarchs who we've always read about in the Hebrew Bible, but we are beginning to be introduced to the great matriarchs 
who were part of how this whole thing come, can, comes together, this great sprawling narrative. I suspect it's not very good exegesis, but I suspect there are even people who have found echoes in uh, Rebecca's proximate call to the Annunciation story in uh, the Gospels. So there are things about this that are important, um, and uh, we can maybe just uh, have a willing suspension of disbelief about being led around by the nose, you know? Well, there are plenty of places where that still happens, aren't there? And there are places where that happens in this country for, for reasons of fashion uh, and not for uh, possession. So it's an interesting, an interesting thing. But this is about how Rebecca becomes an essential link in the transmission of the divine promise of God as we move now through uh, the narrative about uh, the family of God and Abraham and uh, all these people. The servant that came to see her uh, was not just sort of a, a minor functionary. He was the steward of all of Abraham's possessions. So it was a big cheese. And he came to see her and speak to her about this, uh, about the possibility of marrying Isaac. And so the story ends, and so uh, she does. In Romans, trying to figure this out, here's the thing. I can't talk about this really because it's just too much. But Paul is writing here about how he, he understands the Torah and how he understands the law and the keeping of the law and how he's for himself trying to put together some things about this law that he has loved and revered all of his life now needing be, to be transformed and how do we come to grips with this kind of thing. I used the example uh, a couple of weeks ago about thinking about your worldview. A worldview is not something you see. A worldview is something you look through, like your glasses. And what happened to Paul when he was converted was his spectacles fell off and he stepped on them. He was struck blind, of course, in the story. But his glasses were shattered. And now he has to go about reconstructing a new worldview. And what does it mean to uh, believe in Christ? And what, is the, uh, what are the consequences of doing that? And how do I now communicate this to other people? My fellow Jews, and I'm one of them, and to the Gentiles, where I believe that my mission is to preach to them the gospel of Christ. And so Paul in uh, Romans is reconstructing his worldview for, for his audience. That's what he's talking about on one level. But I think for us, the way in we postmoderns is to think about the kind of thing that is being gotten at here, and that is how do we uh, understand our conflicted motives? And how do we understand uh, the, the um, conflict that exists in every human being between the desire to do the right thing and somehow an inability to do it, or at the last moment we do the thing we don't want to do? In the recovery movement, they talk about uh, 
you know that we're powerless over people, places, and things. And one of the things that we're powerless over often are our own motives and what we think about what it is that we ought to do and coming to grips with the reality that the capacity for the human being to deceive themselves is infinite. There is no limit. And Paul may be talking about this even in his rather tightly uh, wound world that he's, he finds himself in, but he's talking about that kind of conflict it's particularly difficult for us today because we don't really believe that there are any spiritual forces at work in the universe. We believe, uh, most people believe that everything has a material cause. And so if that's true, then you do not have the resources that a lot of people have in other parts of the world where they do, in fact, understand that there are unseen forces at work in the world. I'm beginning to read a book now by uh, a self-confessed uh, secular liberal named Andrew Del Banco, who teaches at Columbia University. And it is called The Disappearance of Satan and coming to grips with the whole idea of evil. And he said, we have in the West no ability to talk about this any longer. We cannot do it. Because we attribute all of these evil bad things to uh, being raised poorly, not having good enough diet, not your, having a, an education that would uh, talk you out of this stuff and understand that, and a variety of other things that tell us that this is what causes these things. And he says in his book, it's wearing thin. Because the stuff we've seen in the last 70 years in uh, Western Europe uh, is not just somebody who was beaten when they were a kid. There's something else that's abroad in the world. It's in too deep. And people find this very difficult to cope with or to believe in our, in our day and age, that there are forces at work uh, that we have to find ways to talk about again and to think in terms of what, they, what it might mean. He uses the example of the book, The Silence of the Lambs, where Jodie Foster, uh, the uh, FBI agent, comes for her first interview with him, and he's locked in a cage, he has a mask on, and uh, he's there saying nothing. And as she's coming near there, near to talk with him, uh, she says to one of her colleagues, what must have happened to this guy that he, could, he would do these things? What happened? So he gets up from sitting in his cell and he says, um, nothing happened to me. I happened. You've got everybody in moral dignity pants. Can you just for a moment admit that I am pure evil? We say no, we can't because he has, there's a material cause for why he's like he is, right? And it may not be so. 
Stay tuned. More on this another time. But on a less severe level, Paul is talking about the ordinary personal conflict uh, between uh, uh, our motives, whether they're corrupt or whether they're pure, and whether or not we can, we can understand why we seem to be, we do things that we don't want to do, and why do we do them, and trying to com- come to grips with this. Now, in his case, he's talking about uh, the difference between the obedience to the law and uh, the grace of God at work in people's lives. But it's always the perennial question, isn't it? How do we understand uh, our need for reliance upon God and our ability to deceive ourselves? And on one level, that's what Paul may be talking about. In the reading from Matthew's Gospel, this is an example of how the Gospel gets put together because the introductory material that we read uh, is really about something else. It's about wisdom and, uh, you know, listening to uh, uh, how wisdom is vindicated by her deeds. And it's obviously a response to critics of Jesus and his ministry. And uh, he's speaking about this. He quotes a, a poem One of the ways in which a person can memorize this if they're speaking to somebody else about uh, Jesus and and, uh, commending uh, their greatest place of safety and assurance, how do they understand that? And then there are two sections at the end uh, that some biblical scholars have called uh, the synoptic thunderbolt in the Johannine sky. (laughs) Because it sounds a lot like they're from John's Gospel. And it's that same kind of thing. Uh, I think most uh, biblical scholars would tell you now that they believe that those are two fragments of liturgical uh, material that were in the early church's worship. And so those things could be recited or sung and so forth. And that, once again, people could hear them and remember them and do uh, that kind of thing. And so... uh, that material is being provided to the Matthean community. Here's the situation on the ground. You talk about this all the time. Matthew was a Jewish Christian. He was a former rabbi in all probability. He was in a Jewish Christian synagogue that was now 90% Gentile. And he's trying to come to grips with how, we, how then must we live? What must we do? And how do we understand that in terms of the tradition I came from and uh, what Jesus represents and how we understand getting along with the Gentiles and what should be required of them if they want to be part of this enterprise because he's right at the tipping point where there were people who said, if you want to be a Christian, you have got to do these things. The men must be circumcised. You must keep the dietary laws and you must observe the Sabbath. That's the bare minimum that you must do if you wish to be a Christian. And there are some Gentiles who said, okay, I'll bring the clipboard, I'll sign. And there are other Gentiles that said, you know, I don't need to do that. And certainly the Gentiles that were evangelized by Paul didn't think they had to believe that, do that because he told them so. He told them that it was not necessary to do that that the important thing was to believe in Christ. 
And if you believe in Christ, then everybody's in. Everybody's in. The Jews are in, and the Gentiles are in. So we don't have to have that fight anymore. Although, once again, maybe one of the terms that we could use for evil, Edwin Friedman used to use this term a lot. He called it perversity. There's a lot of perversity in the, in the world. And sometimes corrupt motives can influence the way in which you think uh, we ought to talk about the conversation of exclusion or inclusion and what is involved in all of that. And so maybe that's part of it as well. So this week, see if you have the opportunity to say, I will to God like Rebecca. Her obedience to, to God is important in that sense. Don't beat yourself up for the internal conflicts you feel between the good you do and uh, the bad you do. And how do you understand that? In the classical spiritual life that I was taught a long, long time ago in seminary, one of the things that we were taught that we should uh, try to avoid at all costs, which is very difficult for some people, and that's known as scrupulosity. <laughs> scrupulosity is a sin. And there are some people who uh, are just going to get it right, come hell or high water. They're going to do it, and they're just going to keep going like this to get it right. And that's not what we're talking about. Scrupulosity is not uh, the goal for Christian people. Finally, know that the wisdom of God in the words and works of Jesus, and by extension, our acceptance of that great and powerful truth is not burdensome, as it says at the end, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Amen. Amen.